Yes, I that's, not, that's not evil. Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil. Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. They are. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of us. Die for the gay disco. Don't, don't use those kinds of slurs. You're on fighting the... for the gay disco. What? Are there are no slurs here. Die for the gay disco. This is an uprising against smug elites. Smug elites. So they're the villains, and the opposite is Definitely our most requested guest, uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, a man who needs no introduction. I mean, it is. That, that's, what they, that's what they pay the Rockefeller Foundation to do. Uh, you're not supposed to know what I just told you. They didn't know about this. They didn't know what we know now. I mean, is there any argument you can use to wake them up? Yeah, I think uh, God had a plan for your life. Well, you'd be jerking off to every curvy piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Fight the people who don't like disco. Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. Sorry. <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, uh, that seemed to be the case. Hello. Today is Friday. The weather's warm. All the snow is gone. It's 50 degrees, 60 degrees warmer than it was the last time I talked to you. And today we're going to jump right into it. We're going to talk about Jordan Peterson. Uh, I've been holding back talking about Jordan Peterson, but something happened that just changed my mind. So uh, why am I saying that? Uh, I have gotten uh, uh, just an email recently. A um, man who listened to my talk on beauty he said, when you, when you said that uh, there was never a time when there was nothing, when there was always Logos, it changed my life because suddenly the universe became a place that could be understood. It's a place that's meant to be understood. Uh, that's true. I did say that. And it's not that I, it wasn't the center of the book on beauty, The Dangers of Beauty. It was the centerpiece of my book, Logos Rising. People have written to me. They've said, I read Logos Rising and it changed my life. I used to be holed up in my mother's basement. I couldn't make sense of anything. And so I was just disappearing one atom at a time. And then I read your book and now I'm uh, married and I just had a child. And so you changed my life. So that's good. 
That's good. And so uh, I, I don't want to do anything that hinders the good. I don't want to quench the smoldering wick. Uh, I don't want to do that. And so I got uh, the other day, uh, I got an email from my friend Bob Odero. Uh, met him in Nairobi. He was a teacher at uh, Strathmore Academy uh, High School uh, in Nairobi. He invited me to give a talk to his class. Uh, and I said, okay, I'm going to talk about proofs for the existence of God. I'm going to talk about metaphysics. And he said to me, you can't do that. They'll never understand that. Well, I walked in and I talked to them about the Hindu boy, 16-year-old Hindu boy who asked me if I could prove the existence of God. And then I proved it to them. And uh, they were brilliant. They were all dressed in their school uniforms, gray slacks, blue blazers. They looked great. They were smart. Some of them were budding philosophers. One of them said, if God's in charge of the universe, how do you explain evil? Shows he's a budding uh, philosopher. Okay, Bob sent me the link to a YouTube video, and there is the man, Jordan Peterson. Not just anywhere. He is in Ephesus. He's standing in front of the Temple of Celsus, and he's giving a talk on Logos. Well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Jordan is going to finally come around and talk about the Logos. Uh, and then, unfortunately, Jordan opened his mouth, and suddenly I realized something very different was happening here. First of all, he began, now why is Ephesus important? Ephesus is, he's right, it is the central place in the world if you're going to talk about Logos. Heraclitus, uh, one of the great pre-Socratic pre philosophers, came from Ephesus, which was uh, in, in Ionia, which means it's in Turkey now. It used to be part of the Persian Empire, and he was a Greek speaker living in the Persian Empire where the two things came together. And he would say, talk about things like fire, uh, uh, fire, which probably got from Zoroastrians because they worship fire. Fire, a candle flame, is always changing and it's always the same. That's the paradox that he tried to explicate. Heraclitus said you could never step into the same river twice uh, because that river is always changing and it's always the same. And he, Heraclitus was the first man to use Logos. Break with Thales and the people who said that water was the fundamental reality. Heraclitus was the first man to say Logos is the fundamental reality of the universe. 500 years later, St. John was living in Ephesus with the Blessed Mother, and that's where he wrote his gospel. And he said at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning there was Logos, and Logos was with God, and Logos was God. Three sentences that changed the world. How did they change the world? By bringing together Greek philosophy, Hebrew scripture, putting them together and creating something completely new, which is called Christianity. So Jordan is there. It's a dramatic setting. He's standing in front of the, the library of Celsus, and he starts off by saying that uh, uh, St. John Christianity came from two streams, the Greek stream and the Judeo-Christian stream. 
At this point, he launches into his speech by making a category mistake. <laughs> this is wrong. First of all, the term Judeo-Christian is not a philosophical term. It's a political term. It's a propaganda term. It was created by Jews like Will Herberg in the 1950s when the Jews wanted to be part of the American experience. Uh, they wanted to be uh, a part of the Protestant Catholic Jewish experience. Uh, what should he have said? He should have said that St. John combined Greek philosophy. As soon as he took the word logos and wrote that uh, gospel in Greek, he was baptizing Greek philosophy. He combined that with Hebrew scripture, and he came up with Christianity, which is the, so Greek, the Greeks had philosophy without understanding history. The Hebrews had a history without understanding philosophy, and now Christianity had both a philosophy and a history that made it the cutting edge of Logos in human history. Why is this important? It's important because I can't tell you how disappointed I was. This is a man, the more I watch this article, uh, watch this speech, this is a man who doesn't know what he's talking about. This is a man who's out of his depth uh, and, and lurches from one category mistake to another. Uh, but then it gets worse. Because at this point, he takes off his philosophical thinking cap and he becomes a scripture scholar. And at this point, he says, In the opening chapters of Genesis, which is where the Logos is highlighted above all else, stop, Jordan. Genesis has nothing to do with Greek philosophy. The author of Genesis, whoever he was, didn't know anything about Greek philosophy. This is completely wrong. Okay? He, he goes on to say, you have a sense that whatever God is uses whatever the Logos is to extract habitable order from potential. I'm not sure that sentence makes any sense. Okay? This is, what did St. John say? He tells us that in the beginning, God created heaven, the heavens and the earth. No, that's, I'm sorry, that's what Genesis says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. St. John took this profound Hebrew insight and rendered it compatible with Greek thought when he said at the beginning of his gospel, ain arche, ain ha logos, in the beginning there was logos. In other words, there was never a time when there wasn't logos. Peterson misses this reality completely when he says that God, whatever God is, uses whatever the Logos is to extract habitable order from potential. This is a statement that's so stupid, it would take hours to unpack. God doesn't use the Logos. God is the Logos. He doesn't extract habitable order from potential. He created heaven and earth. One of the many things that Jordan Peterson does not know is that creation is not change. Change is the movement from one state to another. Change is the movement from potentiality to actuality, which occurs when an acorn becomes an oak. To have change, you have to have something, like an acorn. At the beginning, in the beginning, there is nothing if by nothing we mean something creative. 
Change cannot explain creation because creation goes from nothing to something, a feat which only God can achieve. Greeks like Aristotle could explain change, but neither he nor Plato had any idea that the world was created. They thought the world was eternal, which to them meant it was God, which meant they were pantheists, which meant the philosophy remained stalled until the church fathers explained the Trinity. Genesis changed all that, and when St. John baptized Logos with the water of Genesis, he created the cutting edge of Logos in human history. Christianity gave us the beauty of Renaissance painting in Italy, as well as the beginning of science derived from secondary causality, with which Aquinas' mentor Albertus Magnus discovered in nature. Peterson doesn't understand anything. He understands nothing of what I just said. Instead, he brings up the word chaos, which is the antithesis of what St. John said when he wrote, in the beginning there was logos. This means there was never chaos as the Greeks understood that term. God did not bring order out of chaos. God created heaven and earth out of nothing. If by making that statement we understand that there was never nothing and that Logos is eternal because Logos is God and only God can be a creator. Creatio non est cambio. Rather than figure out any of this, Peterson tells the befuddled undergraduates at Ralston College that in the beginning there was chaos, which is a weird intermingling in the linguistic sense. This is him writing, speaking, I mean sense of chaotic possibility of the world, per se, with confusion and psychological disorientation. And so it's an amalgam. God imposes a benevolent order upon that chaotic possibility, extracts from the chaotic possibility the habitable order that is good. God did no such thing. Peterson is confusing Genesis with Hesiod's Theogony. Hesiod was one of the earliest Greek writers. He's a contemporary of Homer, and he wrote something about how the gods came into existence, and he said there was chaos in the beginning. This is, this is incoherent. I mean, well, let's give, give the guy credit. We're talking about eight centuries before Christ when uh, thought is simply emerging from a, a dead zone that happened uh, around 1200 when everything stopped uh, happening. Hesiod, you would have to say, Hesiod said, uh, or, cr order came out of chaos. Well, where did the chaos come from? Who created the chaos? Can God create chaos? No. God can create, God can create Logos in the universe because he is Logos. At the end of his lecture, Peterson returns to the only area where he feels confident and competent when he tells us that generally... Your bedroom is so familiar that you don't need to perceive it. Suddenly, we're back in the cluttered bedroom that is the best metaphor for Jordan Peterson's mind. As he snuggles into that rumpled, trash-strewn bed, Peterson tells us that what you perceive when you wake up in the morning is the horizon of possibility, which may hide some truth behind its vagueness. More importantly, this leads... Peterson to extrapolate from the messy bed, which is the metaphor his, for his mind, to the mind of God, when he tells the incels that what you perceive is something akin to the chaos God perceived as the word at the beginning of time. 
God did not perceive chaos. What are you talking about? That's Hesiod. Hesiod is not Genesis. Hesiod is not St. John. At this point, once again, Peterson confuses Genesis with Hesiod's theogony. But this time he moves from stupidity to blasphemy. St. Thomas said that the nominalists of his day were guilty of blasphemy because they denied any knowable order to the mind of God. Peterson is doing something similar. Isn't he telling us that at the beginning there was chaos and that chaos preceded Logos? Isn't he really telling us here that Logos is chaos? Deliberately ignoring the fact that St. John told us that Logos is God? Isn't he telling us that chaos is part of God's nature? The key word in my accusation is deliberately. Nothing Jordan Peterson says ever rises to the level of deliberation. This becomes apparent as we watch him desperately scanning his cell phone during his talk as if it were some deus ex machina that's going to deliver him from the fact that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Jordan Peterson traveled all the way to Turkey to desecrate the birthplace of Logos in human history. Not intentionally, he's not educated enough to do that, but en passant, as collateral damage arising from the deep-seated intellectual narcissism that has been the hallmark of his career. Jordan, what do you think of what I just said? I'm, I'm not sure, Dr. Jones. Seems like you're you're a little bit you're a little bit angry, Doctor Jones. I think I think you should take some benzos and chill out. <laughs> okay, all right, that's enough for you. Well, well, if you have any questions for Jordan Peterson, you can ask him to. I don't know if I can do it, Doctor Jones. That's all right. Calm down. Okay. Calm down. Take take one of those pills. Jordan. Okay, Doctor. Uh, the the floor is yours. Uh, if you have any questions about Jordan Peterson, if you have any questions about Logos, if you have any questions about uh, beauty and the relationship between that and Logos, uh, the floor is yours. All right, everybody. Uh, I think you guys know the drill, but I'll let you know real quick if uh, you're new here. Uh, we take Collins right now uh, from Telegram. Uh, the link is in the description. Uh, it's your turn to ask Dr. Jones questions. At first, we'll uh, ask anyone who's ever washing their hand to ask their question, and then uh, near the end, we'll take... Uh, questions from the chat via text. All right. Oh, and also try to keep the one subject. I know I say it every time. Some people don't do it, but try try to keep to the same uh, to the particular subject. Try to keep the one question, and also be respectful of time. And do not forget to unmute yourself. Okay. To the chat. All right. Let's see. Thomas. Go ahead. You there, Thomas? Uh, yes. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, great. Sorry, I was just unmuting. Uh, I just have a quick question about uh, masculinity in the world and the church, because I think Jordan Peterson is ostensibly the surrogate father to lots of young men. And uh, when I've introduced you, Dr. Jones, to people who used to like Jordan Peterson, they tell me um, if they heard this sort of discourse, the stuff that you say, 
um, going on at their local Catholic church, they, they would be down there in two seconds. But the factor of the matter is, I, I can't speak for many churches, but the fact of the matter is there is a lot of um, effeminized, uh, there's a lot of effeminate, effeminization in Catholic churches today as well. How do you propose, how do you propose tackling that? How, how, how come even in the Catholic church, someone like you is considered controversial? Why can't we have more people like you in the church? What do we do? Because I'm a prophet. How do I know? How do you, how do I know I'm a prophet? Because I have no honor in my native place. That's proof that I'm a prophet. There is only one of me. Okay. Everything I say comes from in some sense or other, the patrimony of Catholic philosophical thought and theological thought. So that's what you're getting. Okay, did, did God say that every single parish priest was going to be a combination of Plato, Aristotle, and St. Thomas Aquinas? No. There is only one St. Thomas Aquinas, there is only one St. Augustine, and there's only one E. Michael Jones, okay? Not that I'm—I I know they would be flattered to be in my company. I'm not trying to say I'm like them, but I'm saying there's only one of me, and my job is to write books, and your job is to read the books. And then take that message to that parish. This guy, the, the priest yeah. there, is not a, has not been appointed to be a philosopher. He has had philosophical training if he went to the seminary. His job is to uh, perform the sacraments, which are the source of grace, which will make you a healthy person, spiritually healthy. Now, back to Jordan Peterson. I, I applaud people who say, clean up your room. That's great, Jordan. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad if you had some type of, if you helped these guys, these poor bastards who are in their mother's basement uh, watching pornography, if you helped them get out of that, God bless you. But you're out of your depth here, buddy. I'm telling you, you're out of your depth. You don't know anything about Logos. And then the question in my mind is, why did you stand up there at this, in Ephesus of all places and make a fool out of yourself? Why did you do that? Jordan, tell me. Okay, he can't do it. Okay, that's that's the problem with Jordan. He can't do it. All right, that did that answer your question? Yes, it did. So I shouldn't consider the priest really as a philosopher. He's just um, someone where you can obtain grace, someone you can go to 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 take part in the sacraments. He says his, the, the priest's job is to say the mass and and uh, perform the sacraments, give you the sacraments like confession, baptism, those things. That's his job. You know, he may be a right. philosopher. I, I'm not. I'm not denying that. But don't don't try and turn him. Don't don't set the bar so high that you're not going to go to church. That would be foolish. Okay. Fair enough. I just wanted to say that there were young men that when I introduced them to you, they made that comment. But but you're right. I think it's a misunderstanding of people's roles in the church. Okay. Good. All right. Next question. Thank you, Doctor. You're welcome. Okay. See who's next. The modern, the modern yay twenty four monarchist. Allow uh, to speak. Don't forget to unmute. Hello, Doctor Jones. Hello. Uh, hello, Peterson in the room as well. Hello. I have a. <laughs> I have a question. Shut up, for Jordan. You. I'm Shut up, Jordan. He's not sorry. talking to you. I'm sorry. Oh. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I'm rereading Jewish revolutionary spirit, and I'm in a the chapter revolutionary music of the 1930s. And, um, you know, I, I know about the 
the Jewish immigration from 1880s, 1920s that you mentioned, but how exactly, um, you know, in, 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 in sort of like a, you know, a short answer time, I don't want to take too much of your time. How much did, uh, how did they take over the music industry so quickly? I mean, it seems rather just crazy, you know, from, from the 20s okay. to the to Yeah, the I mean, uh, specifically, they were always, they got to New York. New York is the center of uh, entertainment, and they, they took it over. They got, uh, that's how they got Hollywood. They basically stole the technology, left New York, went to Hollywood, and created it out there, created an empire out there. But the, specifically about the, uh, in the 1930s, uh, the, the, the Jews were uh, infiltrating unions, and they would go south. They went to Appalachia uh, to unionize the, the garment workers in Appalachia. And when they got there, they started listening to Appalachian music, which is pretty much the basis of what we call folk music. And they loved it. They loved it. It wasn't, it wasn't part of their experience. Their experience uh, is, you know, F minor. Uh, this Russian type of uh, like uh, da 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 uh, uh, Moscow Nights, uh, a, a good song in a minor key. That's that's the type of music they learned in Odessa. They come over here. It's completely different music, and they're 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 revolutionary. So they appropriate the music, and then they start uh, putting revolutionary lyrics to really sunny, like uh, D chord three three chord uh, melodies. Uh, so. What's an example? Uh, Woody Guthrie, the Reuben James. Tell me what were their names? Tell me what were their names? Does anybody here? Was anybody here on the ship Reuben James? Well, the Reuben James was a, 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 a ship that got sunk uh, when the communists wanted the people to uh, have an alliance with the Soviet Union. Uh, but he appropriated Wildwood Flower, which was by the, uh, what family? I forget the name of the family right now. Famous family. It does, it does, it kind of works, uh, but it's, it, it's, it's incompatible uh, because you've got a kind of revolutionary uh, message coming from very unrevolutionary uh, folk music. So it didn't work. So that's how, that's how the Jews got involved in folk music. Uh, and that's how they brought it to New York City, and it flowered there in 1960 when Jews like uh, Grossman, Albert Grossman, created Peter Paul and Mary and Bob Dylan and people like that. Hmm. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. It's always good to have that clarified. You're welcome. Thank you, God. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Next, um, user five five four four five. You know who you are. All right, your turn to speak. Hello? Hello. Uh, hello. Um, do you think that um, Jordan Peterson is like a, a net positive or a net negative? That's a good question. That is a very good question. And I think you'd have to say, uh, you'd have to specify what, which Jordan Peterson are we talking about? Because I think he's, cha like, I think he's changed uh, over time. So the man, yeah, I totally the, agree. the man at the beginning who started off fighting feminism and pronouns in Canada and then told you to clean up your room and was kind of like your, your uh, personal trainer and psychologist, I think that guy's sincere. Yeah. But over, why is he talking about Logos? Why did you do this? Yeah. Well, I think, to be perfectly honest with you, I think Ben Shapiro had something to do with this. Because now he's working with, uh, on the Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro is... 
basically his handler. He's the kind of like uh, Harley Pasternak was to Kanye. That's what he is now to Jordan Peterson. And the thing that really shocked me was there, that picture of there is Jordan Peterson in Israel shaking hands with Benjamin Netanyahu, with Ben Shapiro beaming at the background. If you want my humble opinion, the new Jordan Peterson has been appointed to co-opt the word Logos. Uh, because, I mean, why, I, I would be happy, Jordan, if you... Are you there, Jordan? Yes, Dr. Jules. Okay, this, so pay attention. Yes. So I would be happy if you were to continue this discussion of Logos because we need all the help we can and the more the merrier. But you don't know... You don't know what you're talking about. I hope I didn't hurt your feelings. Well, you, you know what? A net, the net positive is Dr. Jones, my bank account. <clears throat> okay. All right. So there you have it, right out of Jordan's mouth here. Yeah. Uh -oh. I, th I think this, so I think he's now uh, being deliberately co-opting the idea of Logos because I think he's losing his audience because they're waking up that there's something deeper than clean up your room. There's something deeper there. There's, yeah. Go ahead. I think he's also like out of his depth. I think he's out of his depth and like, I don't know, I don't think he's that smart as I used to think he was. I think he's smarter than me. But, you know, I think he just, he's trying to be this super profit guy and it's just not working out for him. No. And he's just like a playboy for all the Israel first lobbies and Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm sorry, but I was shocked when I saw him shaking hands with Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah. I was shocked. But, that you know, I, I'm, I'm not here to tell people who they're allowed to shake hands with. But when you go in front of uh, a, a big audience and you're standing in front of Ephesus and you open your mouth and it's clear you don't have a clue about what you're talking about and you don't understand that there's a difference between Genesis and Hesiod's theogony, uh, why are you doing this unless someone else puts you up to it? Go ahead. Next question. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's go. Keep going here. Lobster to you. All yours. Don't forget to unmute. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Good evening, Dr. Jones. So I have a question here. You said on Twitter that Kanye just blew one of the greatest political opportunities in American history. Do you still believe that or have you changed your mind? I think there was. A, why do you think that? I think there was a great moment of opportunity because he was so famous. Everyone knew him so well. And what happened was so outrageous. I'm talking about his personal trainer, uh, Harley Pasternak threatening to shoot him up with drugs, threatening to ship him off to zombie land so that he'd never see his children again. That was shocking. And the, the missed opportunity was that Kanye should have concentrated on that. I was trying to get in contact with him. I would, I mean, who am I? All right. You, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have my, a, a, a private jet. He's got two. I don't have uh, close to billions of dollars. But I, I would like to have said, look, let's just calm down. Take a step back because this, this is what I think you should have said. You should have said, look, if this, I lost a billion dollars because the ADL did not like what I said. No one should have this power, and I'm not the only one who's suffering. The ADL can come in and wreck your life, and that is not consistent with American principles like the First Amendment. And we need to unite to dr bring these people within the, uh, within the confines of uh, civilized behavior and constitutional thought. That's what I think he should have said. He jumped in and said, 
Tolstoy opened his mouth and said Hitler, and at that point you could hear champagne corks bopping, popping at ADL headquarters in South Bend, Indiana, and that's 700 miles away. I could hear those champagne corks popping. That's the tragedy. I think that's why it was a lost opportunity. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's keep it going here. Yep. Uh, next, here we go. Forgive my laughter. All yours. Good evening, Dr. Jones. Happy New Year. Thank you. Same to you. Uh, I was just wondering, um, my whole family has uh, left the Catholic Church, my extended family, aunts and uncles, cousins, for uh, the Pentecostal Assemblies of God religion. And you've helped me greatly uh, argue with them about revelation and dispensationalism, but it's still hard to get through to them. What would you say to someone who emphasizes private revelation, like uh, a personal relationship with God as their uh, means of salvation? First of all, I, I, I'm not clear what you mean by private revelation. Private revelation from the Catholic point of view would be something like Fatima, uh, you know, yeah. where, where the Blessed Mother comes down. I think Fatima was authentic. I was there, okay? Uh, and I had a deep religious experience, spiritual experience there. But if it's private revelation, even if it's true, and I think that Fatima was true, it's not necessary for salvation. You, you don't need to believe in Fatima to be saved. You need to be baptized in order to be saved. You need to do certain things, and private revelation is not one of them. There are dangers to private revelation because it becomes emotional, and the emotional power can carry you over into a world where you're, you're promoting lies. And that's precisely what happened with Medjugorje. Now, with the evangelicals, I'm, I, look, I'm saying, said this before, I said this before, is, is, is the, the rosary a good thing? Yes. Yes, it's a good thing. Can it be used by the devil? Yes. Medjugorje's classic example uses the rosary to lead you out of the church. That's the crucial issue. Medjugorje, they use the rosary to attack the local bishop. That's a bad thing. That's rebellion. That's how the devil can use that. Can the devil use the Bible? Is the Bible a good thing? Of course the Bible is a good thing. Can the devil use it? Of course he can use it. What do you think the Reformation was? It was using the Bible to break you away from the church. And so that's what I would say to, to, your, to your relatives. Anything that it gets used, even good and holy things, if they get used to separate you from the church, which is the source of grace through its sacraments, it's evil, and you have to resist it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Uh, uh, Jones. I also uh, believe in Fatima. That it, when I said private revelation, I meant more like, they just emphasize a personal relationship. Like that's how they rationalize things. They don't yep. need the sacraments or anything like that. Right. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Dr. Okay. God bless. Thank you. Next here we have Ali Morano. I think that is. Uh, floor is yours, Ali. Don't forget to unmute. Hey, Dr. Jones, good to talk to you after such a long time. If I may, I'd like to revisit the territory of slaughter of cities. Okay. Uh, because uh, my, my first uh, encounter with you is through that uh, horrible incident at Catholic University at the Architecture School. And uh, ah, I'm good. Go yeah. Ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, you know, I just sort of follow these things because I'm interested in urbanism and everything like that. And uh, I'm in one of those ethnic neighborhoods that, that basically got. Uh, overrun very, very, uh, very uh, obviously. It does not mention in your book, but uh, 
you know, I'm looking at who are the Louis Worths of the 21st century. And uh, I don't know if you followed this story about the infrastructure bill and that uh, one of the objectives is to remake or, uh, yeah, remake zoning laws in the suburbs. Um, and I just see that as like a, a continuing chapter of this, uh, you know, urban re-engineering, now suburban re-engineering to, to further atomize uh, communities, you know, neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, the, the real tragedy of that, that event at Catholic was that, you know, I think the title of the whole um, seminar or, or workshops, whatever it was, was rebuilding Catholic communities. Right. Is there any chance for that? Right. Because it seems like there's not. No, you know no. What I mean? no, there's always a chance. There's always a chance. There's always this battle. There's always hope for something or other. Just to refer back to that incident at Catholic University, I was supposed to give a talk on, uh, or basically something out of the slaughter of cities. I forget the exact topic. This was a semester-long series of lectures. I was only one lecturer, and, uh, you know, other people there, I don't even know who they were. Anyway, the head of the Southern Poverty Law Center calls up a dean at Catholic University and says, Jones is an anti-Semite. The dean panics, and not only does he cancel my lecture like hours before I'm supposed to give it, he canceled everybody else's lecture. There are people who don't even know me who got canceled for the entire semester. It was tragic because this is classic, classic Catholic behavior right now where basically, uh, oh, E. Michael Jones, well, let me check on Google to see if he's a Catholic in good standing. Oh, the first thing came up is ADL. Oh, second thing is SPLC. Well, don't you know they control Google? Uh, uh, why are these th people uh, the 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 uh, the decision makers about whether I'm a Catholic in good standing or not? This is tragic. It's got to change. But on the other hand, what I'm trying to say to you is that there's always a possibility here. There's always a possibility. Uh, um, the, there's a uh, the attempt to find some type of community uh, will have people moving into the same neighborhoods. Uh, it's being thwarted by the fact that a lot of those neighborhoods have simply been destroyed. It's also been thwarted by the fact that now you have a guy like Pete Buttigieg taking the idea uh, and twisting it. So what he's talking about now is racist highways, racist highways. No, what he's really talking about. I mean, look, let me be honest with you. This guy lived two houses down the street. He knows who I am. He may have read The Slaughter of Cities, for all I know. He went to Harvard. My son went to Harvard. So it's not impossible, uh, but he's taking this idea of racist. What he's talking about is the ethnic cleansing of Catholic neighborhoods, trying to put a racial spin on it so that he can get the black vote. So he's now going to spend a couple hundred million dollars to change, tear down a road in Detroit because it's racist. When that is completely beside the point, he's co-opting the idea of the corruption, the ethnic cleansing of Catholic neighborhoods and using it for his own political agenda, which I think a lot of people are going to see through. So, yeah, the possibilities are there. Uh, a lot of them, like here in South Bend, we have a, a Latin mass parish. Uh, the people come from all around. Uh, they may move into the neighborhood. There's opportunities. I don't know where that's going to happen. The same thing happened in Cincinnati. I was there in the early 90s. There was, again, a Latin mass at Old St. Mary's. People came from all over the greater Cincinnati area, a 50-mile radius. And I said to them, I said, look, you've got a, a society, but you don't have a community. 
if you want a community, you should move into the neighborhood. And there was a guy there who could have helped them with the, an architect, could have helped them with rehabbing houses and so on and so forth. It didn't happen largely out of fear. They were afraid of the blacks, okay? They had all had these horror stories about what black people had done to them and their grandparents and so on and so forth, so it didn't happen. The principle is the same. If you want a community, uh, uh, you can go, uh, you, the community is known as the parish and it's geographical and it's up to you to vitalize it uh, and that will give you the community that you want. But anyway, thank you. Thank you for your comment. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Continuing on here, let's go with uh, GBOSS88. The floor is yours. Hello, Dr. Jones. Hello. Hello. Um, I'd like to talk to you about this thing I've noticed in regards to um, a lot of the conservative side of politics that uh, seems to have trouble whenever talking about Jews in Israel and, you know, really critically thinking about it. I think one thing I've noticed, right, is that I feel like these conservatives, like, they're on the right track in regards to, like, um, you know, how they connected the dots with groomers and obviously the uh, big encouragement of, you know, uh, feminism and uh, LGBTQ type of stuff, right? And I think the one thing I've noticed, though, is that the reason why some conservatives, especially some evangelicals, cannot uh, connect it back to Jews is because that they have this sort of very warped figure of Israel that uh, they refuse to, like, you know, see other sides because according to uh, cherry-picked verses of the Bible, they try to say that um, Israel is like, um, you know, it's a, it's a chosen nation. So I think what my question that I would ask to you, uh, Dr. Jones, is do you think that the one way to get uh, conservatives and evangelicals into being more knowledgeable on the JQ, do you think a one of the best ways to do that would be to reveal Israel's degeneracy, especially with how Israel has, has been, I mean, behind the mistreatment of Palestinians and also in regards to um, how Tel Aviv, for, for instance, is also uh, a big a disco in of itself. No, if you're asking me for my opinion, the answer to that question is no. I think the best way to open a conversation right now with evangelicals who are of the Schofield dispensationalist persuasion is to bring up the fact that 140 Jewish organizations have now announced that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. That's the opening that God has provided for us at this moment in time with this group of people. Now, I've had ex ex examples of this experience with Oklahoma, for example, is a very pro-life state, and it's also a very Zionist uh, state supporting the state of Israel, largely because it has this large evangelical population that are all dispensationalists. If you talk to these people, you can, you can make progress. The fact of the matter is, most of the time, no one has ever talked to them. So I was in Oklahoma. I'm having dinner with a guy uh, who he says, you know, he was raised in that classic Oklahoma mode. And then he said to me, when I started listening to you on YouTube, he said, my entire world fell apart. Now, he didn't say this, but you've got that contradiction right now. How can these people call themselves God's chosen people when the fundamental value of their religion is killing innocent children in the womb? 
How is that possible? And I think that's a dialogue that needs to take place uh, with our uh, uh, evangelical Christian Zionist brothers. If you're asking me, I think that's the best opening gambit in any discussion with them. Okay. Um, next, we got, what is it? Uh, let's see. Chelsea, Chelsea, FC, Superfan. Floor is yours. Don't forget to unmute. FC Superfan, are you there? Going once. Don't. Oh, there he is. Hello. There we hey, are. Hey, hey. Hello. Hey, uh, hey, how you doing, E. Michael Jones? Good, good. You know, you talk a lot about Jewish people and the JQ and logos, but you never really talk about how evil these fucking women are. You know. So my question. Okay, continuing on here, um, no, no trolls allowed here, okay? Let's see, Mark Robinson, all yours. Good evening, Dr. Jones, how are you? Good, how are you? Doing well. Uh, first, I just wanted to thank you for all your work you've done in your career, bringing so many uh, young people to the faith and banning their uh, pornography habits, so I really appreciate all your work there. My question for you today is I've noticed that uh, comedian Owen Benjamin has been uh, recently turning up the heat against Catholicism a lot more in his uh, recent live streams. Uh, recently, he's mocked Catholics for using the crucifix uh, as an idol and believes that when Catholics look upon a scourged corpus, they are idolaters. How would you explain to Owen the significance of the crucifix and why Catholics have this uh, quote unquote icon in their faith? Look, let me be honest with you. I don't think the issue is the crucifix here. I think the issue is Owen Benjamin. And I've already talked about this. He got involved with uh, uh, blasphemy. I tried to talk to him with a bunch of other people about how you should not talk this way about God, uh, how it's sinful to talk this way about God, and he reacted in a kind of irrational way. Uh, he's got issues so the issue here is not the crucifix. I don't have to defend the crucifix. It's been around for a long time. It's obviously a revered Christian symbol. The question is, Owen, what's Owen's problem? And uh, that's another issue. And uh, I really don't want to get into Owen's problem right now. Uh, that's, that's simply the way I would deal with it. Thank you, Dr. Jones. You're welcome. All right, uh, Dr. Jones, it's 548. Do you want to hit the questions in the chat okay go ahead yeah okay Our, um and this is for you guys who don't know who just joined us we take questions uh, from the chat via text there doesn't seem to be many from cozy so if you guys can start uh, asking questions that you would like in cozy i'm gonna start here in telegram read off a couple then kind of jump back and forth <clears throat> here we go uh question from telegram uh your thoughts on on andrew tate dr jones both. I saw his name for the first time uh, yesterday. He's been, he got arrested in Romania because of had a pizza box on his uh, desk. Uh, he's been arrested for human trafficking. That's all I know. I, I can't give you anything else on Andrew Tate. All right. Pretty, pretty straightforward here. Um, uh, where was it? I just saw it. I think someone was asking uh, your opinion on ultramontanism. Yeah, this is my uh, tax-exempt corporation. It's called Ultramontane Associates. 
and the ultramontanist movement was basically in France. And there were two, two a split in the French Catholic Church, and there were the Gallicans who went along with the government, and there was the ultramontanist, means on the other side of the mountains, uh, that supported the Pope. And I formed this corpora uh, corporation uh, in the 1980s when Pope John Paul II was on the throne bringing about some type of reform, I thought, and the American bishops were uh, basically missing in action at best and oftentimes supporting the sexual revolution. So I supported that, and now God is going to punish me because now we have uh, Bergoglio as Pope um, and he's trying the patience uh, of, a, of a lot of people. Uh, and I think that what we have to realize is that there, you need some type of balance here. You need the unity that only the Pope can provide, but the Pope can only provide that unity uh, if he's faithful to, to tradition. He has to be honest and, and upright and forthright and courageous in supporting the tradition, which is the only basis for the universality of the church. As soon as he gets, it gets as soon as uh, the Pope gets involved in advocating a particular agenda. And I'm, I'm hard, I, I'm sad to say, but I, I see evidence that uh, Bergoglio, uh, Pope Francis is a Jesuit, and I think the Jesuits are running the church right now, and they definitely have an agenda that is not compatible with Catholic tradition. It's more compatible with George Soros's uh, agenda, and George Soros is giving the Jesuits money, so it's not surprising that we have this kind of uh, world Economic Forum uh, aura spreading throughout the church. Okay, uh, next from Cozy from Worm Food. Dr. Jones, have you seen the film uh, The Banshees of Inishirin? And what did you think of it? What's the name of the film? The Banshees of... The Banshees of... I-N-I-S-H-E-R-I. I -N. No, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment on it. No comment. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, someone had... Uh, jumping around here. Here we go. Uh, from uh, Goy Lusto. Dr. Jones, what do you think about the First Vatican Council? Well, who am I to judge? <laughs> it's the Vatican Council. It's part of the magisterium. Yeah, fine. I have no arguments with the First Vatican Council. Okay, let's see. I'm checking cozy for some question marks here. Let's see. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, I see I'm on the way up. Uh, where was it? There was another good question here. Ah, uh, from Shredstein. Thoughts on Kevin McDonald and the evolutionary perspective for explanation of Jewish behavior? Yeah, I think Kevin McDonald is a uh, born and baptized and raised a Catholic, uh, went to the University of Wisconsin, uh, encountered uh, the Jewish cabal at the uh, University of Wisconsin that had been sent there, sent there by the Communist Party to take over the university. Uh, had a professor who, uh, a Jewish professor who basically uh, destroyed his faith. Uh, there are other explanations. I think he got involved in the sexual revolution. So there's a man who uh, has this residual Catholic consciousness, uh, and you can see it in the research he does. He's not, a, he's not an ideologue when it comes to the research. He does real research. He discovers real things. 
like what he discovered about the immigration bill of 1965. This is real research. It's valuable stuff. But he's always being thwarted by this ideology of evolutionary biology, which is preposterous. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to offend anyone, but it's preposterous. Evolution is preposterous, as understood, if you understand it by Darwinism, as, as Darwinism, because that which is cannot come from that which is not. If you want the full explanation of that, read the first chapter of Logos Rising, and it will free your mind from this damnable ideology known as evolution, which has, to some extent, uh, wrecked Kevin's mind. He's got great ideas that are constantly, you're constantly trying to, you know, chop off or run this great idea like this, this fire hose full of water into a little narrow pinprick that is determined by this ideology. Uh, it, it's just, it, it's sad. I just wish Kevin would uh, come back to the faith. Another uh, kind of follow-up question I noticed here for uh, the previous question. Uh, Save the Jewish Ukraine asks, thoughts on Dr. David Duke? Well, Dave, I met David in um, Guadalajara, Mexico. And I said, uh, David, you would be, uh, you should become a Catholic. I think he did. I think he did. I think he's keeping, it seems to be keeping it a secret, but I think he did take my advice and did become a Catholic. So it, it, this broadens, so it, it, it broadens the critique. It broadens the basis for the critique so that you, you can uh, want, the, the, actually the, the name of the article was Ethnos Needs Logos. And that's precisely the, the type of transformation that I think needs to take place here among the white boys who are simply losing out. They're just losing this battle. Charlottesville is the classic example of how uh, white boys are always waving spears, charging the machine gun nest. You, we need to talk about ethnos, uh, ethnicity as opposed to race, because ethnicity is the source of identity, even in America, uh, where you tend to lose the, you know, your identity when you're an immigrant. Uh, ethnicity is compatible with a universalism like Catholicism. It's always been compatible. Uh, Europe never, European countries never lost their identity uh, by becoming Catholic. I know there are a lot of white boys out there who are saying, well, wait a minute, we don't worship Thor anymore. What about the Druids? Blah, blah, blah. Well, they were crippling the Irish, Norwegian, whatever people. They were, these people flowered when they had the gift of Logos, which was brought to them by the Catholic Church, by the great missionaries, by St. Patrick, by St. Boniface, all of these people that uh, allowed Germans to develop uh, from the people who were my ancestors who would be still chasing pigs through the forest if they hadn't become Catholic. I get a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people who yell and scream when I say that, but, but I think it's true. And I think David Duke was smart enough uh, to understand that. And I think, he, you know, I think that I applaud his decision. Okay, <clears throat> moving on from user, let's see, 71811. Is performing physical labor a path to God for men? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. How so? First of all, uh, labor is the source of all value. So if you want to have anything valuable, you have to work. You have to apply labor to it. Secondly, uh, because of the fall, we are forced to labor. 
but the fall, that has been sanctified because uh, labor uh, is uh, the way you work. Uh, you take the givens of this world and use them to bring about some type of higher good. That, that's, that's, in a sense, what human beings are supposed to do. That's what art is. If you take uh, the idea, uh, if you look at labor, you, uh, you, you look at the earth, as I cover this in The Dangers of Beauty, if you look there, and s because Logos is in the universe, you can figure it out and bring it out, and you can create beauty or you can create utility. This is the essence of what we are as rational creatures. We are applying reason to matter, if you want, or let's probably say applying reason to nature in order to achieve some type of higher level, which will lead us all into a better life culture on this earth, and that culture uh, will lead us to heaven uh, if it incorporates these ideas. So yes, it's important. That's exactly what we're here to do. Next question from J.T. Groypen. Question for Dr. Jones. Did Hitler hate Christ, or is that just another Jewish lie? Uh, Hitler, uh, Hitler came uh, into power at a time of intellectual ferment in, in Europe, where basically the faith was being lost in, 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 on a massive scale. And uh, as it's lost, uh, people are looking for other alternatives. And so Hitler originally, when he came to power, uh, felt that uh, God had put him in this position. And then he looked and said, well, we have to unify the German people. And the first thing he ran into was the Reformation and the fact that Germany was divided between Catholic and Protestant. He tried to bring those people together, failed. And at this point, he said, well, we're going to have to go beyond Christianity. And so he went back into the pagan roots of German culture with things like the Nibelungenlied, especially as valorized by Richard Wagner in his operas. Added to that, you had uh, uh, Wagner's son-in-law, Houston Stewart Chamberlain, who was a racial theorist because everybody was a Darwinist at this point, and everybody's thinking in terms of race at this point, and he starts to adopt the racial ideology. The other man he got it from was Madison Grant, who was an American. Race is not a German concept. The, the uh, Wilhelm Schmidt, the great anthropologist, wrote an article talking about how the word was simply incorporated into the German language, R-A-C-E. No one knew how to spell that. You can't pronounce that word in German. There is no such configuration of letters. And so it got turned into Rasse, and Rasse was uh, not the German word for ethnicity. Folk is the German word. And so you had this, these alien imports a kind of mishmash that he whipped all together and created this thing called uh, National Socialism with its uh, roots uh, that had something to do with Christianity, but not really. Uh, he once said uh, that the bishops, he told the Catholic bishops that he was implementing the church's teaching on Jews. And there's an element of truth to that. There's an element of truth that the Catholic church had warned the Christian populations of Europe, that uh, you have to be wary in dealing with the Jews. But uh, it was secret Judeus non was the teaching, and that always was predicated by the fact, preceded by the fact that no one has the right to harm the Jew. Hitler did not have that Catholic restraint, and the result was a, a disaster 
For Germany, and I'm sorry to say a disaster for the entire world because we're still living under the uh, weight of that narrative, the Holocaust narrative, we, thanks to Hitler. Okay. Uh, continuing our kind of take on controversial figures here, we have another good question from Cozy, from Mark Newcomb. Uh, thoughts on Ted Kaczynski's works? Have you read any of his books? No, I haven't. I have no thoughts on Ted Kaczynski. Zero thoughts. Okay. Let me... Here we go. From... Oh, I'm not even going to try that. On Telegram. It's an Irish... It's Gaelic name. Uh, Dr. Jones, can you talk about the Irish language and whether increasing its use as opposed to English will help the Irish people? Thank you. Yeah, my, my good friend, uh, Terry O'Reardon, is now in uh, Montana, uh, teaches Irish at the University of Montana. He was here at, at Notre Dame for a while. They wanted him to stay at the Irish department, uh, but he went to Montana. Uh, so I spent time, he was here. We met regularly when we were here. We've corresponded infrequently now because you know it's a long way away. Uh, he takes his children to Ireland every summer and makes sure that they are fluent in speaking the Irish language. He is very, has a very, makes a very clear case that the imposition of English on the Irish had a, a bad effect on national unity. That in many, in many ways, ethnicity is based on language. It's that simple. Uh, Kenya has 76 different uh, ethnic groups. The only, they all, they're all black. They all look the same to me. Uh, and the only difference is the language they speak. They all speak a tribal language. These groups are too small, okay, to have a national language. This is what the same problem that Julius Nerere discovered when he was in, uh, pre became president of Tanzania. Those, there's an equal number of tribes, maybe the same, I don't know, maybe 50, I think, in, in Tanzania. They're all too small to, to, to be the national language. And so he created Swahili as the national language. That was the language of the Arab slave traders on the coast. Uh, it succeeded. He united that country with Swahili. The problem is that uh, Swahili is not a world language. And so you have Kenya right next to Tanzania, uh, which was a, uh, an English colony, where English is much more deeply rooted. And so they have more access uh, to world ideas than, than Tanzania. Uh, so it's a trade-off. Yes, Tanz Swahili created unity in Tanzania, but you need a language that they're, they're not as good as in English as the Kenyans are. The, the same thing would have happened to, to Ireland. Okay, my, my parents, I grew up hearing my Irish relatives saying we were lucky that we all spoke English in Ireland because we came, when we came to America, uh, we had a head start over the Poles and the Germans and the Italians and so on and so forth. That was part of the lore of the Jones family at that point. Well, that's true. But it, the flip side is also true because what it means is that it had a, a, an effect, a weakening effect on Irish identity in Ireland and Irish unity in Ireland. And, and history collaborated. When they created, the English created the seminary in Maynooth, uh, and it was a, la a seminary where you spoke English. Uh, and so English ideas seeped in to Irish culture, and maybe that's, uh, it'd be interesting to bring Terry on and see, did that collaborate to the weakness today, the weakness of Ireland today? If Ireland all spoke Irish, would they have less, would have been less likely that they would have been colonized by Google 
and all the people that have destroyed Irish culture right now? I don't know. It's a theoretical question. We'll never know the answer to that. But uh, on the positive, so, but I do think it had uh, a weakening effect on Irish identity. I think it did have that effect. It, 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 you would have more national unity if the entire country spoke that their, their native ethnic language. On the other hand, I mean, what are we going to do? Roll back history? We can't change history. And I'm getting um, news, good news from Gemma O'Doherty, uh, a lady who is fighting the good fight against the globalists in Ireland. And she's telling me that the Irish are coming back to church, that the churches were packed over Christmas this year, unprecedented. Uh, and that's in large measure due to Gemma's uh, courageous stand against the globalists. So even if it were the case, it's not the case. The Irish do speak English, and that can, that can, you, that can work out too. I, I, the, the best example of this I can tell you is it's a story. It's a kind of a joke, but there's a Chinaman, and he's sick of working in a factory. He spins the gold, puts his finger down. He's going to go someplace else. His finger lands on Ireland. He goes and he does a dictionary, the encyclopedia. What language do they speak? They speak Irish in Ireland. So he learns Irish. And then he flies and he lands in Dublin and he walks out of the plane and he starts talking Irish to the people there and no one understands him. And so he goes all around Dublin the entire day, going one place to another. No one understands what he's saying. He keeps talking Irish. Finally, he goes into a pub. He's completely discouraged, sits down there, uh, orders a pint of Guinness and turns to the guy next to him and all of a sudden he found someone. This man speaks Irish and they're, they're having a great old conversation. They're chattering away and the bartender's looking at them and finally the bartender turns to the back and he says, Joe, come here. Patty's speaking Chinese. This, this, this is what could, this is, a, this is what could have happened is not what did happen. And I'm saying that the, the language is ultimately not going to be the barrier for you to come back to church, which is the main thing the Irish have to do right now if they want to, un, want to overthrow this cabal of global gay disco terrorism that's been imposed on their country. Okay, continuing here, uh, this is a good question. Um, from I can't I can't pronounce that Mr. Ardens Spe uh, speaking of ultramontanism uh, thoughts on Pope Benedict and his recent health decline yeah uh, well I will pray for the Pope that he has a happy death I think that uh, Benedict is a tragic figure uh, I think uh Let's talk about hypotheticals. Uh, when John Paul II became Pope, uh, he went to Warsaw in 1979 and said mass in front of a million people and started the ball rolling that would eventually bring about the fall of communism because he felt that his first responsibility was to the Polish people. He was the vicar of Christ. He was the head of the universal church, but he was a Pole. And his first responsibility was to deal with the problems of the Polish people. I think the same thing was true of Pope Benedict. He went to Munich with the tailwind of the 
John Paul II papacy behind him, and he swept into Munich as the favorite son, and two million people showed up at his mass. And then he went to Regensburg, and he gave a speech, like the inaugural speech, like, what is this papacy going to be about? And he talked about Muslims. This would be like John Paul II going to Warsaw and talking about the threat of Mormonism. That's not the issue. What was the issue in Germany at that point? It was the, 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 the total subjugation of the German people to the American Empire through the Holocaust narrative. Pope Benedict should have gone and said, uh, if you feel guilty, go to confession, but you should not feel guilty because your grandfather drove a train 50 miles away from Auschwitz. That's over. That's not a source of guilt. I'm saying that's over. That era is over. If he had done that, he would have broken the law in Germany, would have been uh, against paragraph 130, which is against Volksverhetzung or ethnic incitement. And that would have been the best thing that ever happened to Germany and the Catholic Church because then the German government would have been faced with the dilemma, do we arrest the Pope or not? He didn't do it because he didn't kill the Holocaust narrative. The Holocaust narrative killed him. And I'm talking specifically about that that uh, coup d'etat that was orchestrated or called, it was the Williamson Affair, where they basically used Bishop Williamson to overthrow the papacy. He resigned. He never should have resigned. He, was, he got discouraged. He said, this is in the Zaval biography. Read the, uh, my review of Zaval's biography of Ratzinger in Culture Wars for the full story. He told Zaval, when he first became pope, he said the prayer was, pray for me that I don't flee when the wolves come. So he knew he had that fear. He knew he had that weakness. The wolves came and he ran away. When Zewald mentioned the fact that Ratzinger resigned, when Benedict resigned, he said, this is a direct quote from Zewald's book, the prelates at the Vatican were like sheep without a shepherd exactly what happened there. Spiegel, which is a wretched German socialist social engineering operation, has been from its inception when it got a license from the Jew uh, David Mordecai Levy. They said uh, that Ratzinger was guilty of Fahnenflucht, which means desertion under fire. And I think, I think they were right. I think this is why Ratzinger is a tragic figure uh, I think we should pray for him, that he has a, a happy death. But I think he was called on the, to the stage of human history, could, could get two million followers uh, with ease anytime he went someplace and said mass. And when he got onto the stage, he flubbed his lines. All right, uh, it's 612, just keep going, or what do you got? One more question. One more question, all right. Um, I guess, let's see, uh, here's a good one, uh, from Cozy, uh, how does Dr. Jones feel about the, tw uh, losing the 2022 anti-Semitic awards to Ye? I was bitterly disappointed. Bitterly disappointed. But I think I've had much more, I've done much more, uh, in that regard than he has, but you know, it's, it's the ADL, they just want to make, they want to make hay by having a big celebrity there. No, ser ser seriously, seriously, 
uh, we have to uh, call, do everything within our power to rein in this terrorist operation, which can come into your life and destroy your life, and you have no recourse whatsoever. And that's exactly what happened to Kanye, and that can happen to anybody, and it's our duty to stand up to this tyranny. That's our, that's our job, and that's the thought I'd like to leave you with tonight. Thank you for coming. I think we had great discussion. I, I really enjoy having these uh, meetings every week, and we'll see you a week from today. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Once again, uh, this is EMJ Live. Uh, we're and thank you, by the way, thank you for Jordan Jordan for coming here. It's not a problem, Dr. Jones. Any anytime. Okay, good. I thank you, Jordan. Well, I know can't. I know we, 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 we were abusive to you, but you're a good sport. Thank you, Jordan. No, not a problem, Dr. Jones. <clears throat> Anyways, every Friday at 5 Eastern Standard Time, this is when we're doing this uh, podcast. It's on Cozy. It's on Telegram. Links are in the descriptions. Don't forget to subscribe to Culture Wars Magazine. Don't forget to buy books from FidelityPress.org. Subscribe to our Telegram. Clearly subscribe to Cozy if you're on Cozy. We're on Gab, BitChute, all that. Links in the description. Uh, those are the announcements. Any last final words, Dr. Jones? Yes. Happy New Year. Happy New, Happy New Year, everybody. All right. God bless, everybody. God bless.